Welcome to the Executive Function Podcast, where we make the invisible keys to success easy for you to teach your child. We'll go beyond theory to proven action, helping you create peace and independence at home and at school with your host, educational author, award-winning teacher, and celebrated learning coach, Sarah Kesti. Hi, team. Today on the show, we are lucky to have Elliot Callen. He is president of Brighter Day Charity, which helps thousands of families each day and really focuses on addressing teen stress and depression with the ultimate goal of reducing teen suicide. And Elliot, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Sarah, for having me. It's great to be here. Of course. So off the bat, suicide can be a challenging subject. And I noticed my own brain engaging in avoidance when thinking about the topic. So I'm wondering, before we get into kind of how you came to it, as people are listening and sort of, do I want to? I don't know. She said that. How do you approach allowing the emotions that you have while also encouraging your brain to go there, to engage with this topic? Sarah, that's a really complicated question that you asked. I know we haven't talked yet about what a brighter day does, but we will. But it's a very complicated question because suicide has been forever a taboo word in the country. From a religious standpoint, it was considered a sin or a mortal sin, depending on your religion there, and no one was allowed to talk about it. Schools certainly still to this day, for the most part, don't want to mention it. They think if you mention suicide, you're giving teens a viable alternative to life, which you and I know is a ridiculous thing to think. But school administrators still believe that. They're just afraid to mention it. But we made a decision when my son took his life, which happens to be eight years ago today. Oh, wow. Anniversary of my son's passing today, that we would not hide from this that we wanted to touch families and stop the devastation and the destruction that we were going through and we knew we would go through for life. And the only way to do that was get out in front of it. You know, it was only 100 years ago, no one talked about drug addiction or alcohol addiction or deadbeat fathers or deadbeat anything. We wouldn't talk about these things or divorce was taboo. Up until what year was divorce? You weren't even allowed to ever mention you were divorced. So when you get these tough subjects and you put them in the forefront of decent conversation, for us, it's depression and, and suicide, you can have an impact. When you hide from it, you become a victim of it. And we made a decision eight years ago that we would not hide from it. Right. And that's so powerful. And I'm hearing you say, you kind of use some thinking around it and saying, yeah, it is going to be uncomfortable sometimes, but the discomfort is smaller than the value of having it out there. That's how we felt. And it was very early on after the suicide. It actually, you know, on our way back, Jake took his life as a sophomore at the University of Montana. He was 19. And we were frantically looking for him because his phone was turned off and teenagers don't turn off their phones. And so as we were looking for him, Federal Express showed up with a six-page suicide note. Oh, my goodness. And we opened it up and we're like, oh, my God. And we called the police. We called the sheriff. We called school administrators. We called everybody to try to find him. And the hospital said, please hang up. The sheriff is going to call you. And we did. And sure enough, the sheriff called and said, your son jumped in front of a truck at about 1 a.m. 
and the talk screen has been clean, no drugs, no alcohol, we're ruling this a suicide. And we began that process of going up there to claim his body, to bring it back, to deal with that. In stages of mourning, the first one you're in is shock. You're not mourning at all. You're shocked. You You can't believe it. You don't know what to think. You're just, you're devastated. And with his body in the bottom of the plane flying home from Missoula, Montana, as I read this suicide note again, I really focused on that one main paragraph which said, mom and dad, I've been thinking about this for a long time. I never would have told you how I felt. I never would have asked for your help. And I never would have taken your help. And it was at that moment that I came up with the idea of we've got to help other families. This is one of the most destructive and debilitating things that could ever happen to to parents. Siblings can get over it. Parents really never get over it completely. And I wanted to do something about it. And that's how we formed the charity, A Brighter Day, to have an impact on other families, just like ours. And I call it an endless supply of lemons. We're just trying to make some lemonade here. That's what we're doing. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And so we started this to have an impact, Sarah, as took an old concept called Battle of the Bands, been around a long time, repackaged it to Teen Band Showcase. And we had, for the first few years, teen bands playing for teens in community centers all around Northern California. And we handed out backpacks, blue string backpacks, filled with resources that we wrote on stress and depression. Not stress balls and stuff like that, but resources we wrote. And we knew we were onto something when people were coming up to us and saying, my family, my cousin, my father, my brother, everybody seemed to have a story there. Mm -hmm. They knew somebody who took their own life and still didn't want to talk about it, but now they had a way to talk about it. And we did that until COVID hit. And then you have to repackage yourself again. And when COVID hit, we went to using YouTube and Teen Talent Showcase, which means any kind of talent on YouTube. And our first Teen Talent Showcase had 14,000 views. Wow. Just staggering, just staggering. But we couldn't monitor how many of those views We're ending up back on our website, downloading our resources, which was the goal to help them. So we decided that we would beef up, spend a lot of resources, really put a lot of money into building that website out, which is abrighterday.info is one of the best websites for teen depression out there, period, now. We built that out. We built out podcasts. We built out things that we know people would like. We put on the website a teen survival toolkit and a parent survival toolkit. And now we've taken another step because we thought, okay, we realized, we realized I should say, well, teens are parents, and it's mostly to parents because that's the best way to get to teens. We realized not all of them read. They're just not visual. They look at other ways. Mm-hmm. So we came up with a texting program that particularly teens would use. And I have to tell you, my 19-year-old son, he would never have read anything on a website, but he would have texted. And so we created a free text program. They just type the word brighter, B-R-I-G-H-T-E-R, to 741-741. And Sarah, this is all 50 states, 24-7, 365. It's free. You're down in San Diego. You're listening to in Chicago and Boston. It's free. Wow. To 741-741. And within five minutes from the age of 12 on up, they will have somebody to speak to within five minutes 
to up to 45 minutes at a time every day of the week. That's incredible. Incredible. Now, we also realize that doesn't work for everybody as well. So we take it into a next step now. <laughs> and it's all on the website. We've partnered up with betterhelp.com, which is on a website, on the internet. And they provide counseling in all 50 states with licensed counselors via Zoom. And the reason I'm saying that via Zoom is because if your teen is in crisis, Sarah, it could take 10 weeks in some states to get an appointment. Absolutely. Even more. Yeah. And that's a lifetime. Mm -hmm. So BetterHelp with our partnership takes about a week. Parents do have to sign off on this, unlike the texting program, but they have to sign off on it. And BetterHelp has told us that the average teen needs four sessions before they begin to turn things around. And therefore, if they go to our website, we'll pick up the cost of the first four sessions, any state in the country. Wow, that's incredible. We're doing that. So we're really making a difference. And I'm going to tell you that the first question on texting that teens ask is, am I the only one feeling this way? My prediction was, is this normal? Yeah. Yeah, which is kind of the same thing, right? We're always especially teen brains, they're primed to be making these like social assessments and adjusting how they navigate the world based on their peers. And so what you're speaking to in terms of hiding these feelings and not mentioning suicide because it's taboo, that serves to then isolate the people who are going through something that, you know, research shows is way more common than we would give it and acknowledge it. So we feel we're just trying to help teens and their parents deal with stress and oppression with the goal of stopping teen suicide. So, you know, charities live by math. They live by donations and they live by having an impact, which is mathematical. See if we're having an impact. And in the first few years before COVID, we handed out about 2,000 backpacks at our concerts. None of them were on the ground or thrown out. They were literally taken home. Now, last month, We had 14,000 people go to our website and download or touch resources. You know what? I can speak to what's going right in terms of if other people are listening and they're like, how do I do this? What Elliot's describing is really planning for challenges, anticipating impediments, and then creatively addressing them rather than giving it this should. Well, you're a kid who's depressed. You should read an article on a website or you should ask for help. Like the shoulds, I know I've said it on the show a billion times, but it's just not helpful. So instead I'm hearing you say you're planning for the struggle and strategizing around it. Yeah, we're just trying to provide resources that can change lives At the end of the day, it's not going to be the teacher's responsibility to do this. They can't. They're they're overwhelmed. I'm a big fan of teachers. I know how little free time they have in their life. Right. It's not going to be the school counselors. Some of them have several hundred students in their portfolio. It's not going to work. It's going to end up falling on the backs, the legs, and the arms of the parents. And parents, you know, we live in a world where two parents in most situations are working they're just trying to get through the evening, trying to get dinner on a table so they can get the homework to get started, get the laundry in. They're out of time. So if we can get them resources and give them ideas on how to change the lives of their teens and touch the lives of their teens and be better communicators with their teens and to help their teens be better communicators with them, we're going to have an impactful change in everybody's family. 
Absolutely. And what I'm hearing you say is like, it doesn't take much initiation or resource or like many, many phone calls for advocacy. It's just like you have streamlined it so that there aren't those many roadblocks that may turn somebody away from help. That's all we're trying to do is get help. Yeah. I am so glad that we're connecting. I'm glad. You know, Sarah, people ask me, and I know you're going to ask me this, but maybe I'll jump the gun if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Go for it. People ask me, Elliot, I know you obviously have come out as the proponent of parents making the difference versus teachers making the difference. And it's hard for parents. I talk to parents literally every day of the week. I give out my cell number. People call me all times of the day. And sometimes these are cathartic. Sometimes I get calls, sadly, after suicide. Can I talk to Elliot? I need to talk to somebody. And I feel like you understand. And boy, are those tough phone calls. You can't even believe how difficult those are. But parents are going to ask me, Elliot, what can I do? I feel like there's something wrong here. And if I could jump to that, Sarah, with, with your help, with your permission. We have flow on this show. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. And so here's the change that you and I have experienced as parents that didn't exist just a couple generations ago. And that is, and you've said it a million times, it's the cell phone. It's social media. Mm-hmm. Social media now is a highlight reel of everybody else's life, having a good time, but your team. Everybody is. Even my kids asked me one time when they came home for Christmas break, Dad, are we the only ones that don't go to Lake Tahoe for Christmas break? <laughs> it felt like everybody goes but them. So the next day we went to Lake Tahoe and went skiing, but that didn't solve the problem that they felt bad for themselves. And so we've got to go backwards, very old fashioned, major step back as parents. And it doesn't fall just on the burden of mom versus dad. It's a parent. It's parents. I don't know who the primary parent is, but everybody reaches their children in different ways anyway. They're just different. They relate differently to their kids. And the kids relate differently to mom versus dad or stepdad and stepmom in different ways. So everybody can have an impact here. First thing to do that I recommend is we've got to make dinners cell phone free. Leave the cell phone. Go get a basket. Have everybody at the dinner table put cell phone in the basket. No calling your child at college during dinner. No calling grandma. No texting grandma. Nothing. Because what that's going to do is give you as a parent the opportunity to ask some really good questions. Good questions. And create a non-judgmental atmosphere for your team. They'll share things with you if you ask good questions. And if they know that you're not going to lecture them or talk at them. But they're going to figure you're on their side. You're just asking questions. How do you feel about this? What's your favorite class? What's your least favorite class? How's your best friend doing in chemistry? I, I, I know you don't like chemistry. How's your best friend, Jimmy or Mary, whoever it is? How are they doing in chemistry? Because you're going to learn something that maybe your child and Jimmy or Mary, they're not even showing up anymore in chemistry. But nobody in school is telling you that until they get a D or an F. And so they've checked out of chemistry class. They're not showing up after school. They're now just hanging instead of doing something productive. You can begin to learn things. Who's having fun? Who isn't? And you begin to get a feel for if something isn't right. And there's a sixth sense of every parent that says something's just not right, but I can't put my arms around it. But you've got to have the opportunity to hear it and explore their narrative. And, you know, I can add to that, that if parents are listening and you're like, well, my kid says, oh, no, oh, no. There's a couple ways around that. You can say, hmm, 
if you did know, what would you say? And honest to goodness, sometimes that works. Or you can just start with what went right today. You know, if there's anything you're doing that elicits a positive response, again, in a very non-judgmental way, because kids hate that. They withdraw from being judged. My son, who's 29, I have twin 29-year-olds, and my son is just graduating from the University of Wisconsin with dual concurrent PhDs. Wow, congratulations. Thanks. He still answers me in single-syllable, monosyllabic words. <laughs> and I have to remind him, and my conversation goes, Cody, I paid a lot of money for your education. Can you please answer me polysyllabically? <laughs> so kids just don't aren't like that. Boys can be cavemen. It's just how it is. The other part I always tell parents, if you find the dinner table is stressed out, or you're just the taxi driver, as we feel as parents, that I got soccer, I got baseball, I got a club I got to go to. And if that's what's going on, then when you're in the car, take out the iPods, turn off the radio, and just ask some good questions. Yeah. Instead of it being this burden of like, oh, I have to drive my kid. It's like, I get to drive my kid. And I yep. get this this uninterrupted time where we get to explore each other. Yeah. And if that doesn't work, then once we take a walk with your child around the block, because when we're active, we tend to open up a little bit more to even our significant others or to our parents, we're going to do a better job. And you'll feel better asking if you create really positive atmospheres for your team. I love this idea. And it definitely resonates probably with a lot of people because I have a couple inquiries a week. And sometimes it's, I'd say at least one a week is how do I help my kid manage technology? I think they're addicted or the transitions are really hard off of technology or my kid's not talking to me anymore. All of those things really can be addressed through some of these strategies that you're sharing. That's great. You know, the amazing thing, when you and I were doing book reports when we were younger, we did them at the library. Go to the library, get a book report. Now I go to my phone and I need to do something about Afghanistan. I've got the population of Afghanistan, the ethnicity, I've got the demographics, I've got everything, and I've got them in less than 30 seconds. So everything I needed for my report is on my phone. But the downside of that is that it owns teens, and teens can't separate out. Heck, you and I both know how many parents can't get off of Facebook all day. TikTok, Instagram, you want to name it, instant chats. There are so many ways, and now there's a new chat program that has artificial intelligence associated with it. It's going to get even faster. So a more addictive. Right. And so, you know, we can choose to feel victimized by it, or we can do like you did with your charity in terms of anticipating the challenges and then just being one strategy ahead, you know? And yeah. Mental education is a tough, ongoing thing. And I also get it because I know as a parent that I was a single parent for a long time. I know that coming home after working all day or running home, Man, your life is so busy. It's so rushed. Who has time for these kind of questions? Can we just get through the night? I get that. But if we could just step back as parents just a teeny little bit, we're going to have a huge impact on our teens. Yeah. And I think it's easy to take the rebuttals of teens like, leave me alone, as like, okay, they need space. And sometimes they legitimately do need space. But it's also okay for parents to say, all right, this is my teenager doing their natural kind of separation from the nuclear family so that they are prepared to live on their own. It makes sense 
And yet it doesn't have to be a full like stoplight. It can be a speed bump. I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about something else or I'll give you a couple minutes and then I'm going to come back. Whatever it is, we don't have to take sort of the rough exterior. Sometimes they put up to us as fact because there's still our babies in there. They are. Yeah, I was very fortunate, but would not have understood this as a teenager. I had two things going on from my parents, which is really good. When I was in junior high and the beginning of high school, my mother, who was an Auschwitz survivor and an immigrant to this country, would ask me annoyingly, as much as any parent could ever annoy a teen, who's your best friend's best friend? Who do you play with sports all the time? And I was a bit of a jock. And I'd say this person, this person, this person. She would call their mothers up. How annoying is that? And just say, can I stop by and introduce myself? Because she wanted them to know who she was and that they had a freedom to call her if they needed to. And I don't think any of them ever did. It was so annoying. But look how good that was in retrospect. As a parent, wouldn't that be amazing if somebody called you up and say, hey, I see that your daughter and my daughter are best friends. Can I just meet you for coffee so we know each other? That would be so amazing, would it? Amazing. Yeah. And then you've got this sense of community rather than, you know, the growing sense of isolation that most yeah. of us have. And then my mom got deathly ill in the middle of 10th grade. And so it became my dad and myself for 18 months. And I learned how to cook. I took my mother's recipes and I started to cook. And we would go out to dinner once in a while because we had a nurse in the house taking care of my mother. And well, what that did, that gave my dad, who worked like a dog, very hard, depression era dad. It gave him the ability to ask a few questions of me. And he, unlike my mother that I found very annoying, he was very non-judgmental. And he would ask me, so what's your friend Rich do? What's he doing this weekend? And he's going to some party and doing this. Why aren't you going with him? Why are you home when he's going? And it made me think a lot about other things. But he asked all the questions that you're supposed to ask. He is about as unskilled and untrained and uneducated as how to be a great dad as anybody out there. And he was a great dad because he asked very good questions of myself. And that gave me the opportunity to ask questions of me and then make better choices. Yeah. And you can instill some of the checks and balances within your kid, you know, especially teenagers can be pretty impulsive. And the neurodivergent group who listens has like an extra sprinkle or a whole bucket of impulsivity that they're working on. So when you allow your teen to explore their own brain and their own limitations, it becomes part of how they roll rather than this reactive, I'm only acting because of an external force. That's the difference. Be a great parent means asking great questions and looking for great answers. You can solicit them without speaking at your children, which we tend to do anyways, parents. We tell them, well, don't do this and don't do that. And do you know drugs are bad for you? And this is, and you're, did you finish your homework? And that's at. With is very different. Yeah, it's got a totally different flavor. That makes sense. Wow. Um, you've got to get into your teen's head to find out what's cooking up there, to find out, again, what you and I may describe as some teen being bullied may not be for the teen, and some innocuous thing as, well, get over it kind of phrase could be the worst thing in the world for them. And you won't know that without becoming a great communicator with your teen. Yeah, and just I'm hearing you say, Asking open-ended questions and 
being non-judgmental in your response. And parents, you know, in terms of the executive function of doing that, you are allowed to think whatever you want, but you keep game face and you maybe repeat the answer as a strategy. So for example, if I'm coaching someone and they give me a really wonky answer or something that kind of sets off alarm bells in my brain to keep them talking, I need to still provide this safe, non-judgmental space. And so a strategy I use is to jot it down so that I've captured it so it doesn't fall out of my brain. And then I'll usually repeat using reflective listening, like, I hear you saying that, or let me see if I'm getting what you're saying, or something like that, that allows me to help the kid hear it again, but also allows me to buy time to sort of re-regulate my own system so that I don't have a face that betrays my neutrality (laughs) because it's hard sometimes, you know, when kids say some things where like it might get some emotions going in your brain. And so having strategies for continuing the questioning and staying neutral is really important when you want to keep this open platform for your kids. It's hard for us as parents to be neutral and non-judgmental. It's it's in us because that's how our parents were with us. And, you know, in the old days of going out at eight in the morning to play on a Saturday and a Sunday and coming back for dinner and you didn't know where your kid was and what they were doing, but they were safe. That doesn't happen. That's not the environment today. Today, it's all structured. So they're not learning how to be safe. They're not learning how to understand the social situations at all. Some of them aren't even playing sports anymore. They're not getting any exercise. They're, they're doing nothing that just two generations ago, it was just taken for granted that your kid left at eight in the morning on their bike or with a bat or with a ball or with the girls and, and they came back for dinner and they were all good. Mm-hmm. And that's just not how it is anymore. You've got to get into your kid's head in a very safe space, but it's not easy to do. And they want to keep you at arm's length because that's what teens do. They keep their parents at arm's length because their parents are each a thousand years old. That's how they're viewed. Yep. <laughs> exactly. I turned a thousand in November. That's my deal. I've been there a number <laughs> of times. I think actually now that my twins are 29, I've gotten very close to a normal parental age. But for the longest time, I was stuck at 500 or 250. Yeah. Yeah. I could, <laughs> you know, it's developmentally appropriate to give yourself some space so that you as a teen can kind of grow your own thoughts and things. So we're not bagging on teens for being terrible humans because their brains are under construction. It's what they do. And yet I think parents sometimes feel this friction because we want our babies to stay babies and we need a new set of skills to approach our teens because they're different creatures. And I'll give you an example for me how that would have been. If I had gone to my dad who, again, lived through the Depression, lived through World War II, and my mother who was the horribleness of a concentration camp and lived through that, survived that. If I had gone to my dad when I was a teen, and I said to my dad, Dad, I'm feeling really sad, and I can't get over it. I don't know if he would have hit me in the side of the head. He would have wanted to. And said, are you out of your mind? I slept on a floor. We had no food. We had no money. Everything fell apart. Your mother was on the verge of death for years. You know, we're starving to death, people dying all around her, you know, and so forth. And you've got a car. And I had a Chevy Vega in the driveway. You have a girlfriend. You have access to a car. You have everything you want. What are you talking about? He would not have understood. And if my son, who took his life, came to me and said the same thing to me, of course, I wouldn't have hit him in the side of the head because 
They would have called 911 if I did that. But there's a part of me that would have wanted to do that figuratively because I wouldn't want to say to him, Jake, you have a forerunner in there. I'm giving you access to your senior year at high school because you're the youngest. Have fun. I'm not putting a curfew on you if you're communicating with me where you are as long as I know what's going on and you're being reasonable with me. All these things I'm loosening up with you that I didn't do with your siblings because you're the baby and I can do that with you. And I'm I'm in a better place myself. I would not have thought to get him counseling. So mm-hmm. I was ill-equipped to even understand him telling me, which he didn't, that he would have been sad. But he did say something to me when he came home for, again, Christmas break. He died right after that. When he went back to school, he took his life. And he said, I was cooking and he was, I think, in the, in the family room and he, he made a comment. He said, you know, dad, I just want you to know when I was in high school, I considered suicide. Wow. And I stopped immediately. And I said, so where are you today? So I understood the seriousness of the question. He said, no, I'm long over it. That, that's that's way behind me. But I did think about it. And I just looked at him. I said, are you sure? Should we get some counseling? He goes, no, I'm over it. He wasn't over it by any means. He was asking for help. I don't think I was sharp enough to hear it as a call for help. Now, he made a comment to his mom who had bouts of depression in her life. And that was very similar to that. And she replied the same way. Are you thinking about it now? Do we need to? And he said, no, I'm over it. She missed it. And she had had, she had experienced depression. She knew what that felt like. So both parents missed the asking for help symptom that was disguised, but still was there. That's what you don't want to do as a parent is miss these because you might not get it a second time like we did that question. Sure. And, you know, the platform that you're providing of just kind of making it part of your routine that you talk, you unplug and you talk and it's safe to talk. I think that is probably the most powerful antidote to all of this is just having that space where you explore narratives and really deeply listen. You bet. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Ooh, I'm learning a lot from you and I'm self-regulating because a couple times, I don't know if you were recording on Zoom, everybody, so he can see my face and my eyes are like welling up on occasion, but I'm doing my best to keep my voice from cracking, but also allowing it because, you know, these are intense topics. So darn it. Now it's happening again. I can tell you that, you know, I just wrote an article today. And again, Sarah, thank you so much for just allowing me this opportunity. It's going to help a lot of people. I appreciate it. I I sent an article out today, emailed to family, and I posted it on my own personal Facebook. And you're welcome to friend me and you'll see it on there. And then we put it on the Brighter Days Facebook as well. And it's all about the questions that a parent asks themselves post-suicide. Am I allowed to forgive myself? Can I accept the fact that I didn't stop it? And these, these are questions that can never be answered by a parent. So when I go to the cemetery, which I go about every three weeks, four weeks, some used to be every week to the cemetery. Now it's about every month when I go there. And today I'll go because, again, it's the anniversary of his passing. I feel like I owe him an apology, which every counselor would say, that's silly. You didn't take your life. He did. You don't owe an apology to him. But I feel like it was my job as a parent to catch those signs, to be in front of it. And that's why we're on such a quest to help parents be in front of this, to not get behind it. Because getting behind this or not recognizing it or looking at through rose-colored glasses, which I'm sure I did, is 
not where I want to be and not where a parent should be. So how do we get in front of it? And that's what the website is all about and the tools we put together to help parents get in front of teens. We just started, Sarah, we're experimenting right now to take out on the West Coast a once a month Thursday night event of a counselor, a licensed counselor in a room, in a Zoom room where everybody, any parent can come in there, parents only, anonymously if they want. They can change the name of their child and ask any question they want of raising their teen and asking for help. We know they're going to be the same six or eight questions every time. It's a licensed therapist, so to be careful how they give specific advice because it's their license to California. But we're going to do it by time zone three times a month as we bring this out. And they're modeling ourselves after AA, which has done a great job where you can be anonymous if you want to be there. But we can't go live anymore because if it's not a flu, it's a pandemic. And we want people to feel that they can be in a safe space and be anonymous, which is what Zoom is, and ask a question. Look, my child is doing poorly and I don't know how to address them. And they can get a legitimate answer for themselves without their teen even maybe even knowing that they asked that question. That's amazing. And again, that's another tool for that self-regulation piece of allowing it to be scary and also allowing it to be worth it. You bet. And that'll be free to everybody as well. Oh, well, as your resources update, I will share them away. So just keep me on the list. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you again. Yeah. So, you know, as we kind of wrap up, I'm just extending my deep appreciation for this opportunity and recognizing that, you know, because we've all been touched by suicide in our lives, that this may be a tricky and very important episode to listen to. And I imagine other people who are listening are going to want to visit the website, abrighterday.info. Info. We have .org also. It's the same thing. But abrighterday.info. And then on there is the texting line, the live Zoom counseling line, and so many resources. And you could join our mailing list for free. There's no advertising. We do original creative writing twice a month that goes out. And we're in the top 2.5% of all podcasters in, in the world now on mental health and so forth. So we want people to listen, and we don't associate any advertising with that. We do raise money. We've got a golf outing and a donation program, but that's separate from all the resources. Yeah. And your golf outing actually is coming up soon. So do you want to do a plug? (laughs) It's June 12th. It's here in Northern California. It's super fun. We've been sold out four years in a row now. It's great. It's a fun day. It's a scramble program. Everybody wins something. It's being held at the Crow Canyon Country Club. It's a private country club on Monday, June 12th. The website's going to have how to register. It's not up yet, but it will be up in the next few weeks. And we would encourage you and your friends Come on out, bring a foursome, be a sponsor. If you're a restaurant and you're in the food industry, come and be a whole and advertise your restaurant down that hall. It's tons of fun for a great cause. Yeah, it looked like it. I saw it on the website. That's very cool. And then you have a book coming out, which we will link in the show notes. But do you want to give just a quick teaser for that? (laughs) Yeah, we've got one and we've got a second one coming out. I wrote a book not about mental health, but about leadership. And leadership through adversity, since I run another company that's actually a for-profit company that pays my bills, Prosperity Financial Group. So I wrote a book about leadership through adversity because that broken line or crooked line of things not working out the way you want, I've had that happen in my life before, and you keep coming back. You know, it always reminds me of the Rocky movie. He made a comment, Rocky, Sylvester Stallone in the movie. It's not how many times you get knocked down. It's how many times you get back up. 
And I've always thought about that. It made my kids listen to that over and over and over. And so that's what my book's going to be about. Oh, that's amazing. And after my 22nd surgery three weeks ago, I very much understand the get back up component. And it takes a lot, but that's that's the grit. Wow. Good luck on that. Jeez. (laughs) Right? I know. But that's that's my something. And we all have a something or several. So, Elliot, it has been wonderful and enlightening and inspiring. And I'm really, really thankful to have had you on the show. Sarah, it's been my pleasure. And I hope you and I both are having an impact on the lives of people around us. That's we're mission driven, right? You bet. Yeah. All right, my friend. Well, everybody who is listening, his resources will be in the show notes as well as in the newsletter that I send out. So if you aren't signed up for the newsletter, go to sarahkesty.com and sign up there and you will have lots of resources, including these coming your way. Elliot, thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Executive Function Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please head over to sarahkesty.com where you'll find more resources and chances to connect with others. And please remember to like and review the show wherever you listen to this podcast. We're eager to transform the lives of even more families. 